Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to talk about candor, particularly candor when it comes to direct messages with peers and as a manager. Now, if you think about it as a manager, you got a bunch of roles. You know, you have to get results, you have to build a team, and you certainly give feedback, especially this time of year when everybody's thinking about performance reviews and planning for next year. So, but it turns out that being a great boss means that you do that with radical candor. And that's an interesting concept. And the notion of how do I get be so candid without making people angry with me and demotivating them? And how do I find the courage to actually give the message in a direct, concrete way? And more importantly, why should I bother? So my guest today is Kim Scott. Now, Kim is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Radical Candor. Be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. But Kim also led AdSense, YouTube, DoubleClick teams at Google, and then she joined Apple University to develop and teach managing at Apple. And Kim is now a CEO coach at Dropbox and at Qualtrics, Twitter, I should say has been, and several other tech companies. She's currently the co-founder of Radical Candor, which helps companies build a radical Candor Culture. And you can find a lot more about her at her website, RadicalCandor.com, or on her Twitter account, at Kim Ball Scott. Kim, welcome to the show. I can't wait to hear more. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's a great show. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's going to get better with your comments. So, (laughs) Radical Candor, let's start with this one. Why did you, I mean, so you've done all this work in all these tech companies, seen a lot of stuff going on. What got you started on this concept of radical candor? You know, I think that, that the, the core motivating event happened when I had an experience that almost every manager I have ever met has had. So here's what happened to me. I had this guy working for me. We'll call him Bob. And I really liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were, we were once at a, a manager offsite, and it was a, at a moment in time in the company's history when we were all busy and extremely stressed. And, and we were playing one of those get-to-know-you games that felt at the moment kind of endless and irrelevant. <laughs> None of us really wanted to be doing it. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and say, look, I really want to get to know you people better, but I can tell we're all a little bit stressed out. I've got an idea that will help us get to know each other, and it will be really fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, we were down with it. And so he said, let's just go around the table and share with one another what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. So we all did it. Weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So kind of quirky, kind of strange, but very lovable. We all loved working with Bob. There was only one problem with Bob. He was doing terrible work. 
absolutely terrible work. And I was so puzzled, I couldn't understand what was going on because... He had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments, and so I, I was, I just was flummoxed. I didn't know what to do. So he would turn stuff into me, shame in his eyes. He knew his work wasn't really that good, and I would say something like, oh, Bob, this is so good. You're so smart. You're so great. Maybe you can make it a little bit better. And of course, he never did. Now... I learned much later that the problem, the thing that was going wrong, the reason why Bob's work was so bad was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy he always had. (laughs) But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that his work was not good enough and it wasn't getting any better. And, of course, I didn't really do anything to help it get better with the kind of feedback I gave him, which was so hedgy that he didn't really know his work wasn't nearly good enough. But of course, all his teammates did. And they were having to constantly cover for him, redo his work, wait for him when his deliverables were late, and then be late themselves. And they were getting increasingly frustrated. And after about 10 months of this, the inevitable happened. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose all my best performers. So I sat down to have the conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said to me, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize that I have failed Bob in a bunch of different really important ways. First and foremost, I have failed to solicit feedback from Bob. I never asked him what was going well and, more importantly, what was going badly from his perspective. Maybe, just maybe, I was doing something that was driving poor old Bob so crazy he was forced to toke up in the bathroom three times a day. But I never knew because I didn't ask him, didn't solicit feedback from Bob. In addition to that, I never gave Bob guidance, as I call it in the book. And guidance is both praise and criticism. So I never told Bob what was genuinely good about the work that he was doing. The kind of praise that I gave him was really just kind of an ego salve or a head fake. And... I also never told Bob when his work wasn't nearly good enough. I never gave Bob good criticism, helpful criticism, clear criticism. And last but not least, probably worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone on the team would tell Bob what was genuinely good about the work he was doing and also when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, I'm now having to fire him because of it. And I hadn't told him. I hadn't been as clear because I was just trying to be so nice. But now it wasn't so nice in the end, having to fire him. It was the worst of all possible outcomes. And I realized that in, in, at, at that moment, it was too late to save Bob. Even Bob at this point agreed that he should go. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, 
and that I would do everything in my power to help the other people who I worked with avoid making that mistake. And that's really the moment that motivated me and that continued to motivate me to become a better boss and also to write the book and to come up with a radical candor framework and, and to be talking to you today so that, so that all your listeners can avoid making that mistake. Sounds like a really important mistake. I think it's one everybody has experienced somewhere in their life, either on the receiving end or as the manager on the giving end, or even as the team member um, participating or not participating in that one. I watch my Or even in, to- in personal relationships sometimes, too. <laughs> Uh, that one we can talk about as well. Um, I watch people ping pong between two extremes. One is they don't want to demotivate and they don't mm-hmm. want to hurt someone's ego and they don't want to lose whatever qualities they're getting out of the bobs on their team, even if it isn't perfect. So they don't really say it as directly as they could say it because that feels bad. Or they say it so harshly that Bob's ready to walk out the door immediately without even trying to correct the problem. Do you see the same thing, those two extremes? Yeah, and I have names for those two extremes. So if you think about at, at the core of radical candor is doing two things at the same time, caring personally and being willing to challenge directly. And when you can do both at the same time, it's radical candor. Now, sometimes we care personally and we worry so much about not hurting somebody's feelings or not demotivating them that we, we do show we care, but we fail to challenge directly. And that's the sort of too nice um, uh, problem that you were describing. And that I call ruinous empathy. And it's so important to think about, and, and I would encourage all, all of your listeners to think about the time in their life where they didn't say something because they were trying to be nice and then the situation got much worse. So, so we've all had these ruinous empathy experiences. And I think that's one of the things that can motivate you. You don't want to lose your caring personally, certainly, but you can both care personally and challenge directly at the same time. Now, the other thing that often happens is we don't say something. We don't say this is the hero's path to the two mean quadrant. We don't say something, we don't say something, and we're getting more and more and more frustrated. And by the time we do say something, we're so furious, we say it in this really harsh way. That's kind of the hero's path to what I call obnoxious aggression. And obnoxious aggression is what happens when you forget to show that you care personally, and all you do is challenge directly. Right. So, and I, you know, as I think about everybody that I, any number of people that I've talked to and how important it is to get that sense that the boss cares personally about you. And when I know that your comments are coming from a space of you genuinely care, I'm much more willing to take the challenge or the criticism, even if it's not delivered in the most perfect way, I'm going to take it in a better way. I'm going to take it from a place of good intent. And I think that's what you're getting at. Now, then that begs a question. How do I begin to show people that I care personally? Because what might matter to me might not be the same for somebody else. So what's the secret there for showing that you care personally? It's a, it's a, that is a, a really important question because sometimes managers decide that the way to show they care personally is to get creepily personal. <laughs> and that, uh, that definitely does not help. I, I had a bunch of emails from people saying, gosh, my boss is oversharing these intimate personal details and, 
and then expecting me to do the same, and that's, that's not what I want out of this relationship. So I think one of the most important things to remember about showing you care personally is that it doesn't, it really doesn't have to take a long time, and it doesn't necessarily require these deep, intimate, personal confessions. In fact, for me, the origin story of radical candor happened in the space of time that it took a light to change on the street of Manhattan. I was walking a puppy, a dog uh, that I had just gotten, a golden retriever puppy, and I adored this dog. Her name was Belvedere. And I loved Belvedere so much that I had never said a cross word to her. And as a result, she was totally out of control. And she was jumping all over the place. She jumped into the street. I pulled her out of the way of a speeding cab just in the nick of time. I'm standing there on the street corner with my throat and my heart. And a man, a perfect stranger, looks at me and he says, I can see you really love that dog. That's all he has to do to move up on the care personally dimension is just to see me as a human being in that moment. He doesn't have to know my birthday or my kids' names or even my name. I can see you really love that dog. But, he says to me, you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach her to sit. And then he points at the ground in this kind of harsh gesture and he says, sit. And the dog sat. I had no idea she even knew what that meant. And, and I looked at him in, a, in amazement, and he said to me, it's not mean, it's clear. And then the light changed, and he walked off, leaving me with words to live by. So I think especially if you feel like you're struggling with ruinous empathy, you already know how to show you care. Um, so, so it, the, the, the second thing you need to do to, to, to behave in a way that is caring is actually to challenge the person directly, to be willing to take the risk, to, to endure the discomfort of challenging the person directly. So in, in many cases, it's the challenge directly that is how you show you care. And there are other times where you really don't know the person as this stranger on the street in, in Manhattan, but you can see there's something going on with this person. And if you can take just a moment to, to see the person in front of you as a human being with a human need, uh, then, then the conversation is going to go much better. I was once, uh, I was once speaking to uh, Andy Grove, uh, who was the CEO of Intel, and a journalist was doing a a piece on mentors and how to be a good mentor. And he came across a man who was an executive, a tech exec, and he said, ah, Andy Grove was a wonderful mentor for me. And he gave me this advice early in my life that, that set me up for the rest of my life. And but he barely knew Andy Grove. He, he had shared a cab from the airport with him once. And Andy said, you know, that is really w- w- all it takes to be a good mentor is you're, you're in the moment with someone. Someone asks you a question. You take a second. You understand why they're asking you the question. And you give it some thought and give an answer. So very often, caring personally is just about remembering in, in the moment that there's a person, a human being on the other side of the line or, or in front of you and engaging at a human level. Very, very often it's just about putting your phone in your pocket, looking someone in the eye and having a real human conversation. Right. 
Something, yes, we all know we need to do. All right. So, Kim, go back to Bob, who's working for you. And go back to before you had to fire him. How could you have seen him more as a human person? What should you have been looking for? What could you have looked for? Well, so so one of the things I mentioned that I noticed when he would hand his work in to me is there was shame in his eyes. Mm. And I just ignored it. And if, if I had said instead, you don't look happy with this, what's going on? Like, that right. would have been a really easy way for me to begin a conversation with him very, very early on. Uh, and maybe he wouldn't have told me anything, but maybe he would have. But just when someone is in some sort of distress and they're working for you or they're working with you and you just ignore that distress because it's awkward, uh, you're not doing anybody a favor. You're not doing yourself a favor. You're not doing them a favor. You're not doing the team a favor because something's going wrong and they're showing you something's going wrong and you're not addressing it. And, and that's just not helpful. It's hard to address it. I mean, sometimes we like to pretend at work that everything's okay all the time. But it's usually, <laughs> and often things are better than we think they are. Like, it's good to uh, acknowledge and notice the good stuff, too. Radical candor is about praise as much as criticism. So I think the other thing I could have done with Bob is to, to let him know how much people appreciated his humor and and his charm. He was actually pretty good at connecting at a at a human level with others. Um, but he he just something was going on with him, and and something was going wrong in his life that was causing him uh, to to have a a problem with with drugs. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's also a pretty big thing to miss, but you can easily do it. It happens. I know lots of times of I've seen managers who don't want to embarrass somebody. So they won't call out, you seem to be distressed, or every time you hand this in, you seem embarrassed by the work, or you seem unhappy with something. They're afraid to call that out. So how do you help people get the courage to just take a chance? Is it just a matter of knowing the consequences for not doing so? It's, yeah, it's really, it is really difficult. It's really, it's so easy for me to say, be radically candid, but in the moment, it's hard, and it's still hard for me. We all struggle with this, so I don't mean to act like, oh, it's easy, just do it. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think a few things can help. One is, make sure you have private conversations. Make sure you have private conversations, and sort of frequent casual conversations with people. Get a cup of coffee. Um, make sure that you do things like take walk around the block uh, if, you're, if you're in the city and there is a block. Take little walks. Um, get a cup of tea. Just these little casual human interactions make this so much easier. And one of the nice things, by the way, about walking is that you're looking in the same direction. You're going in the same direction. The more sort of formality you put around these conversations, scheduling a meeting, sitting across the table from someone, the, the less human and the more awkward they seem to become. So, so try, to, try to get in the habit of, of interacting with people, just taking little walks, getting cups of coffee with people on a regular basis. And it shouldn't always be around 
bad news, by the way. One time I was, uh, I had a startup, and there was a great, there was a Dean and DeLuca coffee shop. It was in New York, uh, right across the street from where the office was. And I used to take people, when I had critical feedback from them, I'd take them for a cappuccino. <laughs> Pretty soon it was known as the cappuccino of doom. So yeah. you want to make sure that you're not always focusing on the, on the negative stuff when you are having these walks. So, so I think criticize in private and in a casual human way uh, is, is one piece of advice I would have. And then the other, the other thing that has really helped me, because I, I was definitely raised, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, I was raised ne- really never to say anything critical if you could possibly help it. But I, I found that remembering that Bob story, remembering the consequences of not saying anything, helped me realize that saying something was an act of kindness. So I, th- I think that one of the mistakes that we make very often is we think that critical feedback is mean. And it's not, in fact, mean if it's clear and helpful. And so making sure that you think about any critical feedback that you need to, to give as an act of kindness, as a gift that you're giving to somebody. You're not trying to prove you're better than them. You're not trying to establish dominance or anything like that by giving this cr- critical feedback. You're trying to help them and the whole team achieve something together. Does that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. Um, the I know, so I do an awful lot of work, as listeners have heard me say on many occasions, with companies helping managers understand how to get the best out of their more diverse candidates, however you want to define that. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I find is that you're, there's not as much informal interaction with people who are different than you than there is with Mm -hmm. people who are more similar to you. And one of the things that you do that just makes this sense of there's a human relationship is spend informal time with everybody and not always about a problem that we have to talk about. Just informally, unscheduled, unplanned, impromptu, um, because that's where we get to see the human side. And I also think that's where you build the human relationship and where you show you care. Because that's where you're going to find out the person's really stressed about something else or really enthusiastic about an opportunity or whatever. Yeah. And it's also how you're going to learn how to interpret. But sometimes somebody will look upset and they're not upset. Yeah. <laughs> you, you need to learn how to interpret different people's sort of body language uh, right. and, and, and the way they communicate emotions. Because we... We sort of expect, I think maybe because we watch so much TV, we expect a a kind of formula for the expression of emotions. But in fact, people express their emotions uh, in a wide range of very different ways. So I think, you know, one of the the things that, that is important to be conscious of is, though, how you spend your time. And... So you want to make sure uh, of a couple of things. I think one is that if you have a series of direct reports, make sure that you schedule one-on-ones with each of them. And if possible, best practice is uh, sort of a 50-minute one-on-one every week. Um, so a relatively long 
meeting with the person. And I used to I used to have a rule with myself that I would never have more than five direct reports because there were only five lunch slots in the week. <laughs> and and every day was a different lunch with a different one of my direct reports. And I think having sort of thinking about your mentality for those one-on-one meetings is really important because especially when you're a manager, but all of us, I think, at work, feel like our calendar is cluttered with too many meetings, and it's tempting to just skip those meeting, those one-on-one meetings as unnecessary. But in fact, I found they were my most important meeting of the week, and the way that I learned to enjoy them and to make the most of them was to change my mentality about them. Rather than viewing them as calendar clutter or this burden, I realized at one point in my career that I was scheduling lunches with people outside of the office as a way to sort of re-energize and get to know these people. And I was like, what? Why am I not getting to know the people who I'm working with? I like these people, actually. So, so try to think about those meetings as, as a lunch with someone you're getting to know, someone you find interesting. It's, it's not lunch with a friend, but it's, it's lunch with someone who you're profoundly curious about and who you do care about at a human level. The, your relationships are, at work are often not friendships, but they are very human relationships. And so have that kind of one. And then, and then all of a sudden those meetings become a, an enjoyable part of your week and also a really productive and valuable part of your week. And again, if you're the boss, the way to think about those lunches ideally or maybe you take a walk or whatever it is you want to do but the way to think about those meetings is to to think that it's the other person sets the agenda this is not your meeting it's right. their meeting and you're really there to listen these are primarily meetings in which you listen but i would save 5 minutes at the end of those meetings to solicit feedback. There's a real order of operations to radical candor, and it begins with soliciting feedback, not giving it. You you don't want to dish it out until you prove you can take it. That's another thing you can do to make it easier to give it. If you've solicited it and responded well yourself, it's much easier to give it, and it's easier for the other person to accept it in the spirit with which you mean it if you have opened yourself up to other people's criticism. Well, that's an interesting idea. So I solicit first. I demonstrate that I can take it, that it's okay for you to tell me what you think. And then I'm in a better place to actually deliver the message that I want you to focus on. Yeah, interesting but idea. Again, this is the, the order of operations is sort of in the spirit of your week. Uh, it, it's not every single conversation, um, but yeah. the order of yeah. operations is solicit, solicit criticism first. Next, give praise. Next, give criticism, and then. Last but not least, you have to gauge how whatever it is that you said landed, whether it's praise or criticism, understand how the person is is responding to what you're saying, and then you have to adjust. So even when you're doing the talking, it's more about listening than it is about talking. Because sometimes you'll you'll offer someone some criticism and they will they will get very defensive. And that's your that's your cue to start asking questions, but maybe you have to, if they're angry, defensive, like that's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension. 
And to say, I can see I've made you mad. Uh, that's not my intention here. How can I say this in a way that is, that is more productive? Um, sort of learn how to communicate with the person. Sometimes people will get really upset. And, again, that is your cue to move up on the care personally dimension and say, you know, I can see I've, I've upset you. I, I'm sorry I upset you. That's not my intention. My intention is, is to help you. And, but just to give voice to the emotion in the room and then to ask how you can help. So, so those are some simple things you can do to show you care personally. But more often, more often than not, what have you screw your courage up to give somebody some criticism and you say the thing and the person just doesn't hear you at all. That's what happens more often than not. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is really hard because, you know, you've just worked up the courage to say this thing and now you have to say it again or you have to say it differently. And that's where the vast majority of us make our mistakes. So that's your, that is your cue to be more clear, to be more direct, to challenge even more directly. So, for example, I had a, I had a boss and when I was working at Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of Google about how the AdSense business was doing, the business I was leading. And I walked into the room, and there was Sergey Brin, one of the founders, in one corner on an elliptical trainer in these toe shoes. And there in the other corner was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, so deep in his email it was like his brain had been plugged into his machine. And like any normal person in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. I wasn't sure how in the world to get their attention. Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of weeks, Eric almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So feeling like the meeting's going okay. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And as I was walking past my boss, I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, uh, my boss says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, gosh, I screwed something up. And as we're walking, she started by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sense of the word, the sort of kiss me, kick me. Just me, yeah, yeah. sense, but really seeming to genuinely mean what she was saying, and I was learning something. But of course, all I really wanted to know about was what I had done wrong. And eventually, she said to me, "You said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it?" And I sort of made this brush off gesture with my hand, and I said, "No, I, it's no big deal. It's just a verbal tick. Doesn't really matter." And then she said, but I know this great speech coach, and I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand. And then she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. (laughs) Now, she's got my full attention. I'm no longer brushing her off. And... And this was, a, this was an important moment because she started out gently 
And I didn't hear. I was like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. And then she she went a little further in the challenge directly. I know this person. You should go see this person. I'll get, I'll get Google to pay for it. And once again, I just said, no, I don't have time for that. I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all? So once again, I did not hear her. And then she had to challenge really directly. She had to say it so clearly that I would no longer brush it off. And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid, but in fact, it was the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me in that moment because if she hadn't said it to me in just those words, then she she would never have gotten through to me. I would never have gone to see the speech coach. Uh, those were the words she needed to use to get through to me. And it was hard for her to say that. I write about this anecdote in the book, and I sent her the those pages. And I, I said, is this okay? And she said, did I really say you sounded stupid? I can't believe I would have said that. But she did, I remember. Uh, uh, because she's, she's fundamentally a kind person, and because she is a kind person, she knew she had to get through to me, and she had to tell me why I needed to go see the speech coach. And that was why okay so when i'm not getting responses then from my direct reports or sensibly from others then that's the cue that i need to be more clear and more direct i was going to come back and ask you about what you mean by clear but what you mean is to say it in a way that the person knows exactly what you're talking about yeah that it's completely unambiguous (laughs) that that what you're talking about is causing a problem Great. One of my because um, you know we all it's very yeah. interesting. There's all these studies, uh, uh, but people people who are are good at their work are often a little bit overconfident. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. and you need that kind of overconfidence sometimes to uh, to get through the day. But there's a time and a place where we have to break through it. And it's really hard to break through that that, you know, oh, I'm great uh, kind of kind of thing. There there's a really good there's a really good interview with Steve Jobs. It's called The Lost Interview. And the documentarian, the person who's who's interviewing him asked him a question. He said, I've heard you say to people that their work is shit. (laughs) What do you mean by that? And, you know, he's expecting some kind of apology. And Steve looks at him and says, well, what do you think it means? (laughs) Usually it means their work is shit. And then the interviewer says to to Steve, but so-and-so says, what you really meant is I didn't quite understand that. Could you please explain it? And Steve kind of laughs, and he says, no, that's not really what I meant. And then Steve, but at this point, Steve pauses to think about it. And he says, you know, here's the thing about being a leader. When a team of people is relying on one another to do great work, and somebody is doing work that's not, real, that's not nearly good enough, it, it becomes a leader's job to tell that person in a way that is not open to interpretation when the work is not nearly good enough. And he said, you want to tell people that in a way that reassures them that you have confidence in their abilities, that they can make it good enough. That's why you hired them, after all. But also in a way that doesn't leave any room for interpretation. And he said, and that's a hard thing to do. Now, 
I want to be clear here. I am not saying that it's good feedback to say your work is shit. It is not. Uh, but in the context, I think, of the relationships that he had formed with the super confident people that he had hired around him, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that was better. I mean, I, I think even Steve Jobs had real human meaningful relationships on his team. He wasn't known for his warm and fuzzies, but by the end of his life, uh, his, his COO, Tim Cook, offered to give him part of his liver to save his life, and Steve refused the sacrifice. And I don't know of any word for that other than love. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we're going to take a break here, but let me just leave one thought and then we'll come back and pick this one up after break. But one of the things that I find that frustrates me most about managers, anyone giving feedback is when they give what I'm going to call lazy feedback. Yeah. Meaning it's, it's a business speak word, like you're not strategic enough or I'll pick my favorite one. You like executive presence, which tells oh, me I'm absolutely nothing. And That's therefore I can't you're not do a man. anything. Yeah, can't do anything about it. And what you're talking about <laughs> is feedback that is absolutely crystal clear. And I think the phrase is, it leaves no room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. That would be helpful. Okay, Kim, we're going to take a break at this point. My guest today is Kim Scott. She's the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. And as you can tell, Kim's belief is, and I would echo it as well, this notion that when you care personally and you show that you care personally and then you're challenging directly, you're in the space of radical candor. As opposed to, I care, but I'm not going to challenge you, or I don't care and I'm challenging you, all of which are a bit of a disaster for you, for the other person, and for the team as a whole. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how do you create a culture around you that makes an environment where radical candor is the norm. We'll be right back. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. 
To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Kim Scott, and we're talking about Kim's book, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. You can learn more about Kim at her website, which is RadicalCandor.com, or follow her on Twitter at Kim Ball Scott, B-A-L-L-S-C-O-T-T. So, Kim... Great concepts. We all know how much we need that direct, candid feedback. But I want to talk now about how do I move from me as a boss trying to give radical candor in the best way that I can to how do I create an environment around me where this is more of the culture, that we're all giving radical candor. And I'll give you an example. I've been working with a top team at a company I'll just leave it at that, at a company where they are very nice with each other. And one of the challenges for them to be able to break through on their performance is to get to a place where they actually can give each other constructive feedback on the ideas, on the behaviors, on the interpersonal dynamics. So what's your advice for building a culture where this happens? So it, it is so... If that is an issue you're struggling with, your team is too nice, you're in very good company, and you're also in a good place because it's actually harder to teach teams who are being cruel to one another to be kind. <laughs> so you, you've, you've got a strength. Build on that strength. This was a situation I found myself in when I first, when I first arrived at Google. It's a team of about 100 people, super nice team, really great people, but they weren't giving each other feedback. And one of the things I did is, I, I I came in with two props to the team. I had a, a weekly team meeting with all 100 people. And one of them, I'm going to change a little bit what I did because I did I made a mistake, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But okay. so, so this is what I should have done, actually. So I came in with a big stuffed daisy and with a big stuffed killer whale. There was whoops-a-daisy. And the idea of whoops-a-daisy was that if you screwed something up that week, if you made a big mistake that week, you would nominate yourself for whoops-a-daisy, and then you would tell the story of your mistake, and the promise was you got instant forgiveness from me, and you taught all of your team members not to make the same mistake, and at first, there was a little bit of silence around whoops-a-daisy. It seemed sort of corny, so I put $20 on whoops, and and all of a sudden, and it wasn't like people were so desperate for the $20, that's why they did it, but gave them some sort of plausible deniability about what, you know, it made it into more of a game. And pretty soon, every week, people were criticizing themselves in a way that was seen as giving a gift to the rest of the team to be very clear about the mistakes so other people didn't repeat the same mistakes. And that really helped to develop both an innovative culture where it was safe to make mistakes, but also a culture of radical candor where it was safe to talk about mistakes, your own mistakes. And if it's safe to talk about your own mistakes, it becomes easier to talk about other people's mistakes. 
and and then and then the the stuffed uh, the stuffed orca was you would nominate other people for great things, great work, great teamwork, sort of exceptional kindness, whatever, for incredible things that that you had seen people do that week. And that got people really in the habit of giving each other public praise. Now, an important part of Whoops-a-Daisy is that you only nominated yourself. You would never criticize someone else publicly. The exception, however, was me. I would always criticize myself publicly, and I would invite public criticism. And the reason why I, as the leader, invited public criticism and I was very clear on this. It's not because I want you all to criticize each other in public. In general, you should criticize each other in private. But because it's hard to get on my calendar, if you see me doing something wrong, other people see me doing it wrong too. I need to know about it, and it's just more efficient if if we can talk about it publicly because then I can tell everybody at the same time. And so just sort of getting in the habit of doing this in team meetings really helped to build uh, a spirit of radical candor. Now, I'll tell you what I did wrong. When I was, when I was actually there, I called it um, Whoops the Monkey. It was a stuffed monkey. And, and I got feedback that this was a racist thing to do. And I realized as soon as, as, soon as I was told, I realized my mistake because, because there's a terrible history of, of animalizing black people in, in this country, in, in the United States. And I knew that, of course. You know, the question is, why was I not aware of it? It it was sort of humiliating, really. But but I learned so much from the feedback, and and I realized another thing that I could do uh, to to create a. A, an environment of radical candor on the team was to get people to, to appoint people to be bias busters. And sometimes, I, I didn't think of this at the time, but I've learned this since then as I've written my books. I hire people to be bias busters, to read what I'm writing and to say, look, Kim, this is, this is harmful to others for, for this, this, and this reason. And, and I learned it's really, this is some of the hardest feedback to receive um, when, when someone tells you you've done something that's that's homophobic or, or racist or sexist it's really hard to hear it but so important for you as a leader to know because we all we all make these mistakes and we're in an environment r- right now where these mistakes carry a lot of weight and if you can hire someone to point your biases out to you you can go a long way to creating a spirit of radical candor into creating psychological safety on your team. So those are a couple of ideas. Whoops a daisy, wow. uh, the the killer whale for praise, and and hire a bias buster. <laughs> I love it. How long did it take? So I'm sure in the first event with Whoops-a-Daisy and the killer whale, you get people telling stories. But I would imagine that those first stories were not quite as intense as you or as deep as you might have wanted. How long did it take before people were into it and ready to do it and being, you know, kind of direct candid? It did, you know, it didn't. It took a few weeks. It wasn't forever. The first stories yeah. tended to be sort of funny, which was great. I mean, that's a great way to begin to 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 build a new habit is to use humor. 
and and sort of funny and lighthearted. And as the team got to, as people got to know each other, and as this became sort of part of the routine, people were more comfortable taking a risk, sharing a bigger mistake. So, like the first couple of stories were things like that. There was a group of customer support people. And one guy said, you know, I'd been emailing with my girlfriend and then I jumped into the queue and I accidentally signed, you know, here's how you fix this problem. And instead of signing sincerely, Tom, he signed love, Tom. <laughs> uh, so sort of lighthearted mistakes like that. Uh, but, but by the, you know, within, I would say, six weeks, people were telling some really much bigger mistakes that they had made and, and really valuable lessons that that people had learned I can also see that your willing to willingness to take criticism publicly to solicit it to talk about your own mistakes and to invite that public criticism makes it even easier for people to be candid about their own mistakes. There's a modeling in that one that I can imagine was really, really important. Here's my question for you, Kim. How did you get comfortable receiving it? You know, for this, I owe my grandmother a great debt of gratitude. Okay. <laughs> when I was very, when I was very young, my grandmother told—I I don't even remember what I had done wrong—but she had told me I had done something wrong, and I was very upset and crying about it. And she sat me down and she said, "You know, if you can, if you can listen to it when people." tell you you've made mistakes, you will make fewer mistakes in your life. You'll make new mistakes. You won't keep repeating the same old mistakes, and you'll better be able to become the person who you want to be. And I remember this really made a big impression on me. I can remember sitting on the couch really thinking about what she had said and and realizing she was right. So (laughs) I think I owe that to Granny Alice. <laughs> Thanks, Granny Alice. What a, yeah. a caring <laughs> way Alice. of of being challenging. That was that was a lovely example of what you've been talking about. All right, I want to shift gears for a minute because we've been talking about this all in terms of feedback. You know, giving yeah. feedback, talking about mistakes, giving praise, doing both of those, caring personally and challenging and all that jazz. But that's not all that bosses do. So, you no, know, in the kind of four minutes before we close, with, what else is it that bosses need yeah, to think about? you don't start a company uh, to be this sort of uh, feedback machine. Right. So, so what, you talk, what else do bosses yeah. do? So bosses, bosses give feedback to a team to achieve results. So there's two more, two more crucial things. You've got to build a great team and you've got to get stuff done. You've got to achieve results. And so one of the things that I have thought a lot about is how do you you think about building a a team in a way that is radically candid and in a way that, that shows you care about people but also challenges them directly and this is really this is really crucial because as you're building a team like you're hiring people you're promoting people it's hiring people promoting people firing people those are the ultimate sort of feedback mechanisms right and and now it's not just about hurting someone's feelings or not hurting someone's feelings it's it it impacts their ability to pay the bills, right? So, so the stakes get much higher when you think about building a team. And so one of the ways that I have found is helpful to think about it is you want, you want people on your team, it's, there's going to be another two-by-two two framework, but you want people on your team 
who are performing really well. And that you want 100% of the time. You always want people who are performing well. But you also, some people on your team are going to be on a steep growth trajectory, and other people on your team are going to be on a more gradual growth trajectory. And... This is where this is where a lot of people, a lot of managers get tripped up because if a person is is doing really really well, but they don't necessarily want the next big job, they're they're they are happy doing what they're doing and they're willing to keep doing it often for years if you the boss don't screw it up, and I call these people people who are in rock star mode. They're great at their job. They're your rock of Gibraltar, right? Um, and if you, if you can allow them to keep doing their work without criticizing them for not being, quote-unquote, ambitious, then that's your source of stability on your team. Now, there are other people on your team who are great at their job and they're gunning for the next job. And these, these are people who... I say are in superstar mode or sometimes even shooting star mode, shooting star because you're lucky when they're in your orbit, but they're going to shoot out of your orbit pretty soon. And so you need to manage people in rock star mode very differently from the way that you manage people in superstar mode. So when someone is in superstar mode, you need to make sure that you are challenging them, that you are pushing them really hard, that you are giving them uh, opportunities to do work that is at the next level and seeing how they perform at that next level. And, and, and you also need to make sure that you are sort of building your bench, because those mm-hmm. people are not going to be in that job for a super long time. That's why they're in superstar mode. And when you have, on the other hand, when you have people who are in rock star mode, you want to make sure that you are giving them full credit for the work that they are doing. Very often what happens on teams is that people in superstar mode get all the bonuses and all the highest ratings, but people who are at their same level who are in rock star mode are doing work that's just as good. So it's not fair to give the, the reward for superstar mode is the promotion, but the bonuses should be should be equally distributed between people in superstar right. mode or right. rock star mode, and the ratings should be equally distributed between people in superstar ro- mode and rock star mode. So you want to make sure that you're honoring your people who are in rock star mode. I'm I'm struggling with the language because it's so tempting to just label people and say you're rock stars, but please don't do that. Don't put people in a box. We all have different periods in our career when we're in superstar mode and when we're in rock star mode. So Fair does enough. that make sense to you, this notion so of superstar mode versus rock star mode? I'm going to stop you at that point because, unfortunately, we're going to be out of time. So I love this notion, though, that people are at different points in their career at different times, and we need to treat them differently accordingly. So I challenge in one place, and I give credit in another place that sort of perfectly emphasizes what the individuals need at that moment in time to do their best. So my guest today is Kim Scott. The book we've been talking about is Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim I love the emphasis on the need to show personal caring, just how central that is to this whole concept of creating both a strong team with fabulous results, as well as understanding people how they can truly improve. So, Kim, thanks for being a guest today. 
Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. Great fun. And join us next week for another episode and getting further out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.